This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale, Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Sarah Walsh, Associate Director of the Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy. At age 12, she drove her own team of draft horses to do the haying on her family's 96-acre farm in New York State's most northern reaches. Her first year of college, she studied botany with Robin Wall Kimmerer, an indigenous woman and well-known author. Walsh did a presentation on the scientific side of a plant, as well as researching how it had been used medicinally. This was her first foray into indigenous ways of knowing, which has been a totem throughout her career. The Bosonkill Conservation Corridor, um, the Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy has been working on protecting for years and years. Um, This is actually our 30th anniversary year working on Albany, Schenectady, Montgomery County lands, which is very exciting. Um, So we're protecting working lands and landscapes and important lands for Uh, humans and the environment. The corridor itself is located along the Bosonkill, which is um, Dutch for raging stream. And the Bosonkill is really important because it is a tributary to the Water Valley Reservoir, which is a water source for many, many people. And um, the Conservancy started protecting land in this corridor in the early 2000s um, and has been doing it ever since. We've protected more than a 400-acre corridor along the Bosonkill to ensure its water quality as it heads to that reservoir. And it's just beautiful. It's just really a lovely place to walk. There's an open meadow when you start by the little kiosk and then you go into the woods and all along you feel the presence of the Bosonkill itself. And I hadn't known what it meant, raging stream, because it often seems calm, but perhaps it rages sometimes. It does. It's quite flashy. So when you get a, um, you know, and I live up here on Wolf Creek, which is a tributary to the Bosonkill. So we have two preserves. We have the Bosonkill Preserve, which is off of West Fall Road. Um, And then we also have the Wolf Creek Falls Preserve up on Bosonkill Road. And so these are two public preserves that are open to everyone, dawn to dusk. um, And they give you an opportunity to get out in the woods. Um, and then the other acreage in between is all protected for wildlife. And we don't have public access there. We call those our conservation lands. Um, but yes, it is a flashy stream that rages after a good rainstorm. So, okay. I guess I haven't been there then. So tell us what sparked this idea of honoring the indigenous people who had been on the land first. Where, where did you get that idea from? Yeah. um, Before I came to work for Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy, I worked um, up in the Thousand Islands region and had the opportunity to work with the Algonquin to Adirondack Collaborative. And they work binationally in the U.S. and Canada protecting land um, between the Adirondacks and Algonquin Park in Ontario. Um, The Thousand Islands is a pinch point where animals travel between those two larger conservation areas. And while I was there and eventually became board president, I had the opportunity to work with the Indigenous Peoples of Canada, which was part of 
um, the fabric of that organization. They made sure that the indigenous communities were front and center and a part of every conversation. So I learned a lot from the Canadians and how they um, are working really hard to right the wrongs of the past. And when I came to MHLC, you know, that landscape scale vision is something that I had coming here. So in our 30th year, we've kicked off a strategic plan talking about connecting the Catskills to the Adirondacks. Very similar kind of a mission of ensuring that there are pathways for wildlife to move, but also protected lands to ensure we have clean water and clean air. And a huge part of that is acknowledging the people and the original stewards that came here first. So on the heels of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, we were sort of feeling like we had this opportunity to really right some wrongs and go back. The land we're protecting was actually stolen land um, that was you know, taken from the original people that lived here on the land before European contact. And so we went down this pathway as a team of figuring out how do we honor those that came before us and we're the original stewards of this land. That is really important, and I want to delve into it. But first, I want to take a side trip because you mentioned your own background, and I'd like to just back up a little more to understand more about you. I, you know, quickly looked up the easy things to find on the internet, and I see you have a bachelor's degree in wildlife sciences from the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, which I had the old-fashioned name for and called it the Syracuse Forestry School. But just Mm -hmm. tell us, like, what started you on this path of caring about the wilderness and then it looks like you've added, or maybe not added, maybe that's just as central to you, this care for um, inclusivity and honoring past people. Could you just kind of back up us and tell us a little about your life growing up, like who your parents were, where you're from, where you got those values and interests? Yeah, I grew up on the Canadian border, so I come by the sort of the turning to the Canadians for resources, honestly, 10 minutes south of the border, really an hour south of Ottawa, Canada. I spent a lot of time in Canada as a child. It was the nearest place to, you know, quote unquote, get to the city. Um, My parents moved up there from Connecticut to get us away from the hustle and bustle of city life. And they bought a 96 acre farm on um, a dirt road. And so they did a hobby farm. We raised our own pigs. We raised chickens. Um, My mom always had a huge garden, canned produce over the summer months. Um, We also raised draft horses. And so we would actually do the haying with a team of draft horses every summer. So I would actually drive my own team at like age 12. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, isn't that wonderful? So I I had this very sort of... um, quiet upbringing in a very kind of remote place. Um, And I always had a great connection to the land because that was my entertainment. Um, We literally only had a few channels on the TV. There was no cable access um, where we lived. Um, Of course, it was way before cell phones. I mean, I was born in 84, so not too far. I mean, cell phones are kind of a new thing, relatively speaking. 
So very quaint, quiet upbringing. And when I went to go to school, my mom was a huge influence on me. Um, and she, you know, I wanted to go to school to be a music teacher like her, but she saw that the environment was really my deeper passion. And so she brought me to ESF environmental school of, um, science and forestry. And, uh, when I was sort of struggling to figure out what to do with myself college wise, and it just clicked. Um, and I was accepted and went to school there. And, um, and I think one of the most influential things that happened to me while I was there was my freshman year. I had a botany professor by the name of Robin Wall Kimmer, who is quite popular these days. Um, but she is a native woman who has written several books um, and really worked on um, connecting the um, ethnobotanical world. So in our class, we actually got extra bonus points if we presented to the entire hall of students. And there are quite a few of us there at eight o'clock, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Um, but you got bonus points if you presented a plant. So you had to pick a plant. Um, botany, for those of you who don't know, is the study of plants. And so she was my botany professor. Um, you picked a plant and you got to present it, but you had to present it from the scientific side. So the identification characteristics, but more interestingly, you had to go back and figure out how the plant was used medicinally. And this is the idea of ethnobotany um, and sort of the traditional medicinal uses of plants. So this was really sort of my first foyer into indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing. And that has been a totem for me throughout my career as a result of experiencing her and her way of, of you know, interacting with the world and, and sharing this whole other level um, with her students. Abs so I think those are, those are the, the main things, the main influences and in how I sort of came to be. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I was aware from a press release we got probably, maybe it was even pre-COVID, but this idea that you were being inclusive, not with just Native people, but you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement. You mm -hmm. were the one that instigated this idea of the CDTA bus coming from the city of Albany to bring people from that setting, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> into the wild or into these preserved lands. So just tell us a little about that. Yeah, so that, you know... I my husband would say, Sarah, you became woke during <laughs> the pandemic. <laughs> and I think describing my background of coming from a very white, very remote location, I didn't have a lot of access to diversity. Um, and I had a lot of privilege, which I didn't realize until later in life in my adulthood. You know, I, I and it was really sort of us purchasing our first home where I'm podcasting from today. Um, that sort of stirred up all of these and the Black Lives Matter movement, the pandemic, all of these thoughts of, oh, my gosh, like I am so privileged to be able to own property for one. Um, and, you know, to be able to walk out my back door and be 
in open space and recreate. And not everyone has that. Um, I did spend a short amount of time living in downtown Albany and I just love the city and I love everything about it. And I just was thinking about everyone living there during the pandemic and, and how to give them access and relief during a challenging time. Um, and that's how the idea of nature bus came to be essentially was, you know, can we work with our capital district transportation authority to be able to give free access to residents in the city to green spaces that are not too far away. So five rivers is, you know, a very short distance um, from the city, but if you don't have a car, it's kind of far, you know, it's too far to bike. Um, and then Thatcher Park as well is an amazing resource. You can see the city of Albany from the escarpment, but how do we get people there? And of course, MHLC has 22 preserves that are open to the public. How do we get people on our land as well so they can interact with nature and connect with it to be able to breathe a sigh of relief? It was the only safe place for people to gather during the pandemic. Um, and it just seemed like a natural fit for CDTA doing as much as they do for the community to, to help us with that initiative. And has that continued? Is that still an ongoing project? Yeah, so we just um, were about to wrap our second year of Nature Bus. So we launched in 2021 and we did 15 weeks every Saturday. Um, and we did about nine sites um, in 2021. This year we're doing 18 weeks. It'll wrap on Saturday, September 24th. So you have two weekends to still get on the bus for free. Um, and this year's a little different. We have um, programming that is geared towards. Um, bus goers every Saturday. So you have the opportunity to either, you know, um, go and do a story walk like at our Norman's Kill West Preserve, or you can, which is very sort of on your own, or you can go have a guided hike over at Five Rivers or Thatcher Park. Um, and just working on, you know, getting programming out there so that people get hooked on nature. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, so now we're going to go back to the project that's at the center of this podcast. Just kind of, if you can, walk us through the process from the beginning, because I know <clears throat> of at least one other organization, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee at the Gilderland School District is trying to do that kind of research for the lands that the school district covers. And I can imagine there might be other listeners or readers that once they hear your success with this might want to sort of follow suit. So could you just kind of walk us through how, how you made this happen? The recipe, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the first thing that we did was we looked within our resources. Do we know anyone who has any history with indigenous acknowledgements or um, the indigenous community? Do we know any indigenous culture experts? Um, we were very lucky on our board of directors. We have a gentleman, Bill Little, who also lives in Altamont, who is a former attorney for the Department of Environmental Conservation. Um, and he worked with Jeff Gregg while he was there. Um, Jeff worked on indigenous acknowledgement through New York State and had made some community connections. Um, and so through our internal 
you know, folks that we already knew, we were able to reach out to Jeff and he really provided not only some excellent resources, but some great guidance on how to do this. Um, The first thing is not assuming that you know whose land that you're on. And one of the resources that um, was shared with me is native-land.ca. And this is a website that shows the approximate boundaries of the indigenous folks across the United States, Canada, and other areas in the world so that you can find out who had existed and exists on your where you're living now or where you're working now. And so this is a great interactive map online. And I'll say the, the um, URL again, it's native-land.ca. Um, and you can scroll in and out and see the different um, affiliations of indigenous people on the landscape. The other thing that we did, which is I think the most important part of this whole process is to reach out to the nations that you're trying to honor. So I'm just a white girl who who doesn't really know too much. And so reaching out to our community, um, once we figured out that our um, whose ancestral unceded lands we were working on, reaching out to those folks to be able to engage in a conversation, not a transactional conversation, but one that will grow and continue and evolve into a relationship long-term is really incredibly important. For us, you know, we discovered that we are on the traditional unceded lands of the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican community. Um, So I reached directly to that community they have their own web page, um, and their name actually tells the history of them on the land. So they started here in the Hudson Valley and were pushed out to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and then moved to Muncie, Wisconsin. So Stockbridge, Muncie, Mohican community. Heather Briegel um, was the educator there at the time that I reached to, um, and this community already had some great Um, existing boilerplate language to help with indigenous acknowledgements. And Heather was incredibly helpful in describing the things to include in an acknowledgement and why they were important. Um, So doing your research and reflecting on these things is really important, especially um, including the contemporary. So a lot of people say, okay, the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican people live in Wisconsin. Well, that's true. The community is, you know, physically there, but not all the Mohicans left. And there are still Mohicans that exist on the the land today. And so ensuring that you're making sure that you're acknowledging the presence of that community on the land is important as well. We are also in Mohawk um, territory as well. So the Mohicans and Mohawk cohabitated this area and on that nativeland.ca map, you'll see sort of the blending of these territories and how they cross over. And so we didn't just, you know, acknowledge the Stockbridge amongst the Mohican community, um, but also the Mohawk community. And we worked with Kay Olin, who is local. She lives um, in the capital region and is a lovely storyteller from the Mohawk community. 
We also reached further north to David Arquette, who is part of the Haudenosaunee Environmental Task Force and the Akwesasne um, up in the North Country, and worked with both of them to, K really, to craft the um, the language. And then David worked with the elders um, up in Akwesasne to be able to gain approval for that. So not only do we engage with this community and they helped us craft this, but we also wanted their approval um, because we can't just talk about them and not be engaged with them and not get their approval. So that took some time and some patience, which I think is is difficult from um, a cultural perspective. Um, and I think that's another thing to keep in mind is that there is differences in culture and um, just being patient and kind and understanding is really another critical piece for making something like this happen. So the last thing I'll mention is making sure that a land acknowledgement is not just something that sits on a shelf or stays on your website, but is an action piece. And that takes us to um, this Friday, September 16th. We're actually um, updating two of our kiosks at the Bozenkill Preserve and Wolf Creek Falls Preserve that will include the indigenous acknowledgement and also the history pre-European contact, which was missing. Um, Suzette Plant, now these kiosks were put in years and years ago, which is still no, not a good excuse, um, but Suzette Plant, who had helped us get the public access at the Bozenkill, had seen our land acknowledgement and our announcement of that last year and reached out over the winter months and said, you know, I think that kiosk at Bozenkill doesn't acknowledge the indigenous pre-European history. She's like, can we work on that together? We said, absolutely. So our team got together with Suzette. We worked to craft and rewrite the histories to include the pre-European um, indigenous history that is so critical to understanding the landscape. And then also updated the kiosks to include our land acknowledgement on it as well. And so this Friday, we're doing a formal uh, commemoration of that um, at the Bozenkill Preserve at noon. So this is that action piece of not just saying that we did an acknowledgement, but we're also updating all of our language to ensure that we are paying the proper homage throughout all the work that we do. And it's going to be an ongoing <laughs> education because these kiosks are permanent and anybody who goes to visit will then be able to read that. Well, so many things that you said just now have fascinated me. I just like to back up and I tried, you know, looking up some of these people online before I spoke to you. And I just love to hear... Um, because I, the person I had talked with earlier about the land was Bonnie Hartley. She's um, the historic preservation officer, and she's based in Troy for the Mohegans because she had worked with the town of Bethlehem when they had unearthed uh, an archaeological group that was an amateur, and they then discovered some of the things they unearthed were human remains. So, oh, my. Uh, yeah, so they um, donated them back to the tribe and, you know, had this ceremony. But what I hadn't realized until I started looking up some of the people that, you know, you just mentioned, if you could kind of give us a little profile of them, because I think what happens to a lot of white people, or at least 
speaking from my own ignorance, is we tend to think of indigenous people as having been in the past rather than being now. And um, like reading about Heather Briegel, she just had on her <laughs> Facebook page, she's so excited she's been admitted to the PhD program in Wisconsin. And she's just like so committed to her um, mission of both perpetuating and sharing her culture. If you could just kind of run through the people that you mentioned in passing and tell us a little about each of them, um, you know, who they are. Yeah, so Heather Briegel is currently a historian and an, an indigenous consultant. Um, when I met her, she was living in Wisconsin. And then she came to New York um, for a short time doing consulting work and helping organizations like us create indigenous acknowledgement and take action. Um, she worked actually for the Mohican community while she was in Wisconsin um, and is um, um, of Mohican descent herself. She is just a life force that is just really amazing to experience. And her passion, particularly for the history, um, was something that was infectious for me and learning things like the Dawes Act, all of these pieces of legislation that were supposed to be helpful um, were only ways to um, marginalize indigenous people more and more. Um, the Relocation Act as well. And I'm, I'm, she would be like, no, no, it's this one. So I'm not saying them exactly as they are, but I'm sure um, that folks who, who know the history, and if they don't, they should definitely look it up. Um, it's very interesting how these things have come about. Um, and so her connection as a historian, also as an indigenous person, sort of tells the history in a very different light that then schools in the United States teach it. So, you know, oh, you know, Indians are on reservations. Um, and that is not the case. Like, it's not that simple. Um, and, you know, Heather provides that historical context of this is what it really means. Um, these lands were reserved so that people could be pushed off of the land and put on these tiny little pieces of reserved land in some of the most harshest conditions um, and marginalized in such a way that many of them didn't survive. Um, and so Heather is just amazing and sort of not only telling the history, but not doing it in a way that is shaming, but in a way that is just true fact um, and helps you wrap your head around the history and how to make it different moving forward. So she is just an incredible resource. And then if you could just, that was wonderful. Tell us a little more about Kay Olin. I listened online to some of the stories that she's yeah. told and she was a school teacher for years. Yes, and she is a knowledge keeper um, and storyteller from the Mohican community. Um, she, it, I just, Jeff Gregg put me in touch with her and we spent, I don't know how much time on the phone going over every word of the acknowledgement together and being so incredibly thoughtful about what we were saying, why we were saying it, and making sure we were saying it properly to pay the proper homage. And Kay's way of being in the world is um, 
oh gosh, it's so lovely in the sense that it's very thoughtful and not rushed. And I think the European culture is go, 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 go. And I've learned so much from her to sort of take a beat, take a breath, more like five breaths, um, (laughs) and really think about things in a really thoughtful, slow manner. Um, And her knowledge of the history and the stories is just amazing. Um, One of the other things I'll mention is that, you know, there are opportunities to connect with these communities because they still exist on the land today. Um, There is actually, and I've got to look at my note real quick. Um, In Greenfield Center, there is um, the N-D-A-K-I-N-N-A Center. And I'm I hesitate to, and I should just go for it. I think it's the Nikina Center. Um, and they have all kinds of indigenous activities. Um, and they're actually having their fall celebration this Saturday from 12 to 5 up in Greenfield Center. And Kay Olin will actually be there providing some storytelling. The other person that I haven't been able to reach that I'm working on reaching is Tom Porter, who lives in Mohawk, um, which is north of Canajahari. And he is one of the elders of the Mohawk community that um, will also be doing a Thanksgiving address for this harvest um, celebration. And that was one thing that really moved me when I was working with the Canadians was experiencing a Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address, um, which is the opening and it's known as the words that come before all else. Um, And so, you know, Tom Porter will be giving that address. Um, I've also had the experience and the pleasure of hearing Henry Lickers give a a welcome. Um, And it is a way of acknowledging every piece of the earth before any other activities take place and to center yourself in as your role as a human being in the earth not on the earth, but in the earth and how it, it, it influences who you are and how life happens. I know that's a very vague description, but the only way you can experience a Thanksgiving address is to go see one. <laughs> so I encourage people to look online for, um, you know, the, the Aquasasne um, Freedom School is local. They're actually having a fundraiser on October 8th. There's also a peace poll dedication in Burnt Hills coming up. And these are all things Kay and I get on the phone, you know, once or twice um, during the busy months to kind of download upcoming uh, Native events that are happening so that I can get on the ground and and meet some of these people, which I'm hoping to do this Saturday. Um, So I, I encourage others to do so as well. And I need to mention David Arquette before we wrap up. No, no, David. he's he was next on my list because okay. I'm not going to miss him. I just okay. thought that there might be something you could say, not just about him, which I would also appreciate, but about the Haudenosaunee Environmental Task Force, because it seemed to me in reading about it that it really uh, sort of layers in in a parallel way to what your own organization is doing in terms of land preservation. So yes, let's hear about him. So David Arquette works up on the Canadian border um, and works on the St. Lawrence River in particular. 
Um, my first job was working as a fisheries technician in the St. Lawrence. Um, and then I worked as a research um, for Save the River, a research advocacy organization as a program manager. So I was a liaison between the public and the scientists about water levels management and managing this incredible resource um, during my time there, one of the biggest things that we were working on was, um, uh, you know, water levels management and all of these other things. But the Haudenosaunee Environmental Task Force um, was quite literally a force of nature in how they were dealing with um, remediation of some of the Superfund sites that exist um, on that side of the, the St. Lawrence River. And the environmental task force is scientific as well as indigenous and is working through some of these really tough, um, horrible environmental legacies that we have left behind on lands that were not ours to begin with. Um, so David Arquette um, was very kind to take a look at and bring our indigenous land acknowledgement to the elders there um, to ensure that it was in keeping with, with what we should be saying. Um, and we were just very happy to be able to, to work with him on that. Um, so it's funny, I've known David for a long time, but I've only met him in passing at events um, in my early twenties and now in my late thirties, um, you know, corresponding with him on email to do these kinds of things has just been sort of a full circle moment for me um, where I started and where I've come. So, um, there's just so much out there for folks to engage with, with our local indigenous communities. Um, and I hope everybody, you know, does so cause it's just something we need to do. So the one person that we haven't heard a lot about, although you mentioned her in passing was Suzette and I'm just trying to quit Tannis plant. Um, just tell us a little about her. So Suzette um, currently resides in France. She used to live in the States, um, I believe. Her parents actually were critical in uh, raising funds for us when we were, we had acquired lands around the Bozenkill Preserve, but we didn't have one that could actually allow the public access component. So literally building a parking area so that people could park their cars and get on the land. Um, and so her parents were integral in creating a fund um, and supporting the purchase of that property in order for us to have that public access component. Even though she's been living abroad, she still keeps tabs on her home uh, area here in the capital region. And she's actually, she'll be here on Friday. Um, but her, um, I think her interests are the same as many of us, just, you know, wanting to ensure that we are paying the proper homage where it is due. And I think for her um, and her parents' legacy of the Bozenkill, she wants to be able to update that so that it's proper um, for future generations. Well, I can't thank you enough for the work that you do and sharing it with us. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I would just encourage everyone to check out native-land.ca. Just because you don't work for, a, you know, an organization or um, what have you, you can still learn about the land that your house is on um, and whose land you're living on. 
Um, and there are also some other resources out there. You can create a sign for your property that talks about your own indigenous land acknowledgement for however many acres you live on or that you lease or rent. Um, so there's ways that you can take action as an individual. I also encourage people to engage with our native communities to learn more. Um, and there are all kinds of great reading books out there. Of course, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweet Grass was really a wonderful read and, and super helpful in understanding and learning about um, indigenous communities and, and ways to think about the world. And um, this was your professor that started you on this whole journey. Wasn't that exactly. wonderful? Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's another book out there, which I can't remember the name of right now, which I know is not helpful. Um but that book is about um, essentially the deeds. Uh, it goes through the history of the deeds and how, um, who was there when the property properties were transferred and what the law was at the time. And so it sort of sets up this history of every time there was a land transfer, the indigenous communities who did not speak English or didn't have a representative that they were supposed to have um, were signing documents that they didn't quite understand. And, and so it sets up this, um, the evidence of how the land was taken away, um, oftentimes without people really knowing. And so um, there's all kinds of great resources out there to educate yourself about this really incredible history um, and ensuring that these cultures that were here first don't, don't disappear from the landscape because they're so rich and so valuable. Well, thank you, Sarah Walsh. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about these um, really important issues and um, you know, I, I absolutely love the Altamont Enterprise and get it sent to my house and follow you guys all the time and appreciate the journalism that you do locally. Um, it really is a breath of fresh air because you guys cover such great issues. So thank you.